X-ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. It is April 29th, 2020, and I'm Jefferson Smith. Today, back in the day, on April 29th, 2011, Prince William and Kate Middleton were married in Westminster Abbey in London. And on that same day in 1945, Adolf Hitler and Eva Braun were married in a bunker in Berlin. I'm not saying it's the same thing, but I am opposed to the monarchy. To wash that taste out of your mouth, in 1933, Willie Nelson was born in Abbott, Texas on this day. It's also China Forbes' birthday, the local band Pick Martini. Not in the same year. As far as I can tell, they're both ageless. It's X-Ray's Fun Drive. It's only lasting a couple more days. Please do donate today. 503-233-X-Ray, 503-233-9729, or go to the website xray.fm. At times like these, not everybody can give. We totally get that. Listen without guilt. But if you can give, I hope you'll help. Today on The Local, your quick six headlines, a look at the Oregon campaign finance news with Dan Meek and Jim Moore, and an interview with Paige Kreisman, DSA candidate for House District 42. Our current institutions are not set up to handle a crisis, and the climate crisis is a much bigger one than the COVID-19 crisis, and that's going to be looming as soon as we get out of this one, and people are still already feeling the impacts of that crisis now. First up, it's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. The campaign finance rules are to be enforced immediately. As reported here, the Oregon Supreme Court ruled last week that voter-approved campaign finance limits will stand. City of Portland election officials now say they will enforce the voter-approved $500 per donor limit starting on Monday. Mayor Ted Wheeler has not followed those campaign finance limits. He will have to follow the requirements starting Monday, but he won't have to return the tens of thousands of dollars he got in contributions over $500 before Monday. Stay tuned for our conversation with Dan Meek, the guy who argued the case before the Supreme Court, and political science professor Jim Moore about last week's ruling. Clackamas County is unveiling new six-person mental health teams. They're called GO Teams. They're going to be available Monday through Friday. Six-person teams will act as mental health responders, and they want to remind local residents not to forget emotional self-care. Team members will have personal protective equipment, masks, gloves, will socially distance. They plan to help individuals and families dealing with anxiety, stress, grief, and other complex social and emotional situations surrounding the pandemic. The idea behind the GO teams, they're mobile. They can provide psychological first aid rather than merely therapy or case management. And today at 3 p.m., the county is hosting a virtual mental health listening session via Zoom. All I want to do is a Zoom, 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 and a... You know the words... <laughs> Your daily dose of data, some inconsistencies have been noted between the Oregon Health Authority data and the data reported to state lawmakers. That's created some confusion about testing trends. The weekly numbers have shown an erroneous record peak in the reported coronavirus infections in one week and a higher climb in weekly test results at another point. State officials have known about the inconsistencies in the tallies for a while. The result is the report provided to lawmakers for the week ending on March 27th is 48 cases higher than the sum of the cases shown in the daily press releases for that same week. In the end, public testing numbers released each day and the weekly numbers provided to lawmakers do add up to the same aggregate. And on Tuesday, the Oregon Health Authority report says the total deaths due to coronavirus in Oregon has reached 99 with 2,835 positive cases across the state. The OHA's Tuesday report also says that cardiovascular disease is the most common underlying condition for those who have succumbed to the illness. And in job and economic news, employment claims are showing economic damage on coastal cities. 
In terms of unemployment, three of the four hardest hit counties in Oregon are on the coast, Coos, Clatsop, and Lincoln counties. And a new report from the Employment Department shows the coast has suffered the most in terms of layoffs in terms of percentage of the workforce. The report's also looked at education levels of those affected, and it looks like college degrees are mattering. The results were that Oregonians who completed a high school diploma or less got laid off at about twice their proportion in terms of total workers in the job market. Those with college degrees or more got laid off at about half their proportion in the workforce. People who lost their jobs disproportionately worked in industries such as travel, hospitality, and declared non-essential services. Meanwhile, Oregon is now accepting unemployment claims for the self-employed and gig workers. Self-employed workers and contractors usually don't pay into the unemployment benefits program. The passage of the CARES Act by Congress broadened those who may receive jobless benefits during the coronavirus. We interviewed Senator Ron Wyden about that very thing. The program will pay claims retroactively and will be run by staff with special training on the expanded benefit. People can potentially be eligible for retroactive benefits as far back as February 2nd. The e-board, the legislature's emergency board, budgeted an extra $3.2 million getting ready for a big fire season. The state doesn't have a dedicated source of revenue for firefighting, and Wildfire Council, appointed by the governor, has estimated that $4 billion is needed over the next 20 years for a package of preparedness needs. Advocates like Representative Paul Holvey from Eugene want dedicated funding for it. $25 million for the package was winding its way through the legislature when Republicans in the Senate fled the state. The coronavirus exacerbates the problem in two ways. It's made it harder to do controlled burns to clear out brush, and social distancing could make firefighting operations harder. Because just when you thought everything was pretty cool, wildfires. Come on. And downtown Portland will close to modify streets for social distancing. I think Ted Wheeler might have listened to the local on Monday. This is Mayor Jenny Durkin up the road in Seattle. Do I have an idea for you? The move follows the lead of cities like Oakland, Seattle, and Denver. It's officially titled Slow Streets, Safe Streets. The biggest correlate of severe traffic injury is not drinking or cell phone use or swervy driving, but traffic speed. According to the Foundation for Traffic Safety, the average risk of death for a pedestrian struck by a vehicle at an impact speed of 23 miles an hour is just 10%. But once you get over 42 miles an hour, the risk of death goes over 50%. PBOT, the city's transportation bureau, released three big plan modifications. Barricades on residential streets so cars can't cut through and pedestrians can walk temporary sidewalks in busy areas, and in the business district, there'll be new loading zones and dedicated space markers for customers to safely make a line. The precise streets that'll be getting these treatments will be finalized in the next couple few weeks. And if you have suggestions on which streets should be closed or modified, you can submit them at 503-823-SAFE. That's 503-823-SAFE. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Reminder, X-Ray is offering free radio spots to businesses and organizations in need from the coronavirus. Submit to the local at xray.fm. Not a lot of levity in the news today, so stay tuned. We've got one of our listeners' favorite Oregon jokes. Stay tuned. We'll do it at the end. I'm Jefferson Smith, and you're listening to The Local. Here's Emily Gilliland with what's next. Thanks, Jefferson. Last Thursday, the Oregon Supreme Court ruled in favor of the voter-approved Multnomah County campaign finance limits. Today we have Jim Moore, Director of Political Outreach, Pacific University, and Dan Meek, campaign finance reform activist and author of the Multnomah County and Portland Measures with us to go deeper on last week's ruling. Dan, let's start with you. What does last week's ruling mean for elections right now? Well, it means the beginning of the end of the chaos of the last 47 years. 
since the Oregon legislature in 1973 repealed the limits on contributions in political campaigns that were enacted by Oregon voters in 1908 and, and were in effect for 67 or so years. Um, right now, on the, on the local level, it means that um, the Multnomah County limits remain in effect. The city of Portland limits remain in effect. Uh, those limits are that no candidate can accept any money from any source other than an individual or a political committee and or and from each an amount of five hundred dollars each during the during the, the election cycle two year election cycle um, for and that's the same limits in Portland city of Portland and Multnomah County uh, those limits have been in place in Multnomah County actually since twenty um, 17 in uh, Portland since September 1st, 2019. Some politicians have been have been just egregiously violating the limits, and the, the politician who has violated them far worse than all others combined is Ted Wheeler, who's taken an, about 100 contributions uh, in excess of the limits. The last I saw, 87% of his campaign fund consisted of unlawful contributions, and uh, he rolled the dice. Um, he thought that he could eventually he could get away with it by by the having the Oregon courts eventually uh, strike down the limits as unconstitutional, but that has not happened and will not happen because the Oregon court Supreme Court is the court of last resort when it comes to interpreting the Oregon Constitution, which has been the barrier to limits on contributions in Oregon uh, since 1997. Jim, what impact do you think this has on the mayor? How big a challenge is he facing? I think it's a fairly big challenge. But it's it's more in terms of just getting things right with what the people want. In terms of, of uh, you know, campaign finance itself, when we look at other places that have campaign finance rules, it doesn't really keep money out of the system, but it does make it different about how the candidates themselves get into the system, start raising money, and start playing a role as they move forward. So it's going to be really interesting to watch. Um, but short term, there's going to be a lot of... It's going to be confusing for people, and, and people will make a big deal about it. We see Sarah Yanarone doing that in the Portland City Mayor's race already. Um, but as we move forward, I think it'll all even out, and it'll just shift the power to another place rather than the candidates. Jim, when you say in other places uh, the money ends up just getting shifted around, where do you anticipate that money getting shifted around to? And then, Dan, I want to come back to you for a reply to that. But go ahead, Jim. When we had this happen in Oregon in the 1990s, what would happen, because there were pretty strict campaign finance rules for, for everything except for Congress, what happened is candidates often were adopted by an interest group, would come in and say, wow, you can't raise money, but we're going to raise money to push your candidacy. And sometimes the candidates did not want that help. And so there's a chance that things like that could happen again as we move forward. Dan? The critique I know you've heard by folks who want to resist passing campaign finance reform in Salem is this it'll just move to independent expenditures. It'll just move to secret money. What's your response to that? Uh, independent expenditures are not secret money because of our measures. Both the Portland measure, the Multnomah County measure, and one thing we haven't talked about yet is Measure 47, which Oregon voters enacted in, in 2006. And according to the Oregon Supreme Court, in a different decision in 2012, will now spring into effect statewide. All of those have what are called tagline requirements for independent expenditures, 
which means that any communication to voters funded by an independent expenditure has to prominently disclose the top five funders to the independent expenditure campaign and the businesses from which they have, if they're individuals, the businesses from which they have derived uh, most of their income over the past five years. It also requires the businesses to identify themselves according to the name affiliated with the six-digit NAICS uh, code, uh, which is the um, a code that businesses are required to use when um, reporting their their income to IRS. Um, so every independent expenditure ad will now have to list the top five top five um, large donors, the businesses they're in, and the businesses they're engaged in. And when these kinds of tagline requirements have been in place in other locations like Richmond, California in 2014, they've had a huge effect. In 2014, um, Richmond was facing regulation by the city council in, of, uh, I mean, Chevron was facing regulation by the city council of Richmond because Chevron had experienced in its large refinery there um, a number of explosions and, and releases of toxic gas clouds. So the, the Richmond city council was considering an ordinance requiring Chevron to at least notify the city when it releases toxic gas. Rather than comply, Chevron decided to take over city government um, spent three million, recruited its own candidates for all of the positions on city council and the mayorship, um, funded them to the extent of three million dollars, uh, outspent the environmentalist plat, uh, environmentalist slate by fifty to one, but all their ads had to say on them, all their ads, all their brochures, all their postcards, all their billboards, had to say on them major funding from Chevron Corporation and energy company, and all of them overwhelmingly lost. So taglines can make a big difference, and that's what we can do until we get until we get rid of Citizens United in one way or another. Dan opened up by saying, well, this is going to resolve the chaos of the past 47. You think the chaos now gets resolved, or you think now is the beginning of a different phase of chaos? I think it's kind of both. When you, when you look at, at the way money has worked around in politics, money's going to find its way. But in Oregon, this is a big step. I mean, because we've had no limits at all, we have been pegged as a big money state for campaigns. And I would argue that we're actually not, uh, putting aside the governor's race two years ago. Uh, but when there's a competitive race, all of a sudden for a city council seat, you've got to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars. For a state legislative seat, you've got to raise millions of dollars. Um, and, and that's just, it, 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 it puts the the focus not on what needs to be talked about, which is the issues. And so I think if, we, if this works, then it's going to put the focus on the issues. I'm not sure it's going to bring new people into politics. Um, that's, when we do these kinds of reforms, that doesn't necessarily happen. But I think it could keep the, the candidates and the people focused on the issues, not who's the money behind you and doing those kinds of things as we move forward. Dan, congratulations on making some history. Yeah, it only took 23 years. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time. We'll talk to you again soon. <laughs> All right. All right, man. Take care. Bye. Next up is an interview with Paige Kreisman, candidate for House District 42. Paige and I discuss what's at stake in this race, running a people-powered campaign, and what she's learned on the campaign trail. House District 42 covers primarily a wide swath of Southeast Portland. The current rep is Rob Nose, but Paige Kreisman is challenging Nose for the seat. Today we have an opportunity to get to learn about Paige's campaign and her vision for the district. Welcome to X-Ray, Paige. 
Thanks so much for having me. It's a great morning out here in Portland. Absolutely. So tell us, who are you and why are you running? My name is Paige Kreisman. Um, my background and experience is as a legislative advocate and organizer with some grassroots uh, organizations here in Portland. So I'm the electoral and legislative chair for the Portland Democratic Socialists of America and a board member for Portland Tenants United. I'm also a disabled veteran. I was the first woman to serve as a indirect fire infantrywoman in the U.S. Army, which is a combat job that was previously open only to men. And I'm running for this seat because in my work down in Salem, uh, advocating for progressive policies last legislative session, I was um, continually disappointed with the compromises and half measures that our Democrat supermajority came up with to address some of the incredibly pressing needs that working class Oregonians have, from the housing crisis to school funding to the environment. And then ultimately that culminated with what was the biggest betrayal of the 2019 session for me, which was when our Democrat supermajority cut the pensions of our public employees. I don't think it's acceptable for a blue state with the Democrat supermajority in both chambers of the legislature and a Democrat governor to be cutting the pensions of teachers and nurses and firefighters, some of the most valuable civil servants in our community, many of whom are now on the front lines of the COVID-19 crisis. So I think it's incredibly important that we elect progressive working class, working class representatives that are only accountable to the people of their districts. That's why we're 100% people powered. I don't accept any corporate money, which is unique here in Oregon. There's no sitting state legislator that doesn't take corporate money. And we have the most corporate spending in our elections per capita of any state in the country. And I don't believe any of these big issues we face can get solved until we get big money out of politics. Mm. What does it mean beyond just not taking corporate uh, money to be 100% people powered? It means that our campaign is grounded in the community. And I believe that that's the way democracy should work here in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, too often we see lobbyists and corporations dictating policy, and that comes and that starts with how our elected representatives win their campaigns. Um, so for stark contrast, our opponent is funded by the fossil fuel industry. He's the top recipient of private health care industry money in the House. And he received less than 10% of his donations from small individual donors last cycle. Mm. And we see that play out in policy with his actions down in Salem when he trends to be more conservative than his electorate. Um, so we're, we're winning this campaign by knocking on doors, not by spending money on ad dumps and mailers, but going out and talking to people. So before we suspended our canvassing operations due to COVID-19, we knocked on 25,000 doors with our amazing people-powered coalition we built, mm. mostly from organizations that have endorsed us, like Sunrise Movement PDX, um, like Portland Democratic Socialists of America, Our Revolution Portland, and a whole slate of unions, the Oregon Education Association, Oregon AFSCME, um, American Federation of Teachers, Oregon, and much, much more. Uh, so what's at stake in the next session of the Oregon legislature? There's a lot. So this is a really important year for state legislator elections. Um, one, because this is going to be the group of legislators that Um, come together with a package to address the COVID-19 crisis next session or in a special session if Kate Brown decides to call one. And I think it's more important now than ever that we elect representatives who will fight for the working class people's needs, the frontline workers' needs. Um, We saw our Democrat supermajority cut the pensions of nurses and public health care professionals in a good economy. Um, So what are we going to see our state government do 
to deal with this economic crisis? Who's our state government going to center? Um, I believe that our state government should first address the needs of working class people, frontline workers, um, before we start addressing the needs of businesses. And right now I'm really worried that if we don't see significant change and a more progressive vision brought to Salem, then we're going to see a Oregon version of a corporate bailout that we're seeing in over and over getting pushed again on the federal level. Mm. And so as you think about becoming a legislator, getting down in Salem as a House District 42 representative, what issues would you tackle first and foremost? Well, I think first up is going to have to be a relief package for families suffering from COVID-19, especially on the economic side. Um, Thousands of Oregonians have lost their jobs and subsequently their health care. Um, but also, none of the other issues are going away just because we have a current crisis. We still have a housing crisis. We still have a climate crisis looming. Um, we still have a state government overrun by corporate interests. Um, so I'm still also going to be fighting for tenants' rights issues, like real meaningful rent control and lifting the state preemption on rent control um, and housing issues along those lines, as well as an Oregon Green New Deal, because you know the way that the way that COVID-19 has been handled has shown us in this country that our current our current institutions are not set up to handle a, a crisis and the climate crisis is a much bigger one uh, than the COVID-19 crisis and that's gonna that's gonna be looming as soon as we get out of this one and people are still already feeling the impacts of that crisis now so we need big bold action on climate um, and then also we really desperately need campaign finance reform in this state um, because we're one of only five states to allow unlimited corporate campaign contributions and that in my mind is unacceptable um, we cannot have a state government that's bought and run by Nike, by fossil fuel industries, by the private healthcare industry. So sometimes change is easier uh, to create pushing from the outside, and you've been connected and involved with some really powerful grassroots movements like Portland Portland Tenants United. What? How will you create change as a representative, sort of almost from the inside in Salem? Right, that's a really important thing for people-powered legislators to think about is, and that's really a question of where does power come from? Mm. Um, And the traditional answer to that is that the power comes from above. A state legislator is someone who waits in line for a seat to come open, and they probably run unopposed or lightly opposed, and they get a whole slate of endorsements from established uh, politicians and incumbents all up and down the ballot. Um, And then when they get in office, they're beholden to their donors, and they're beholden to um, the caucus. So they take their orders from Tina Kotek and the House Majority Leader and serve the needs of their big donors. Um, but our campaign is different, and that's going to be reflected in our office, is that I'm not accountable to any corporation. I'm not going to Salem to work for Tina Kotek or for Kate Brown. I'm going to Salem to work for the working class people of this state. And we're going to use the, the working class power that working class people have, have in this state. And we're going to leverage that to achieve change. And that means turning out people to testify on, on bills, turning out people to rallies and protests to put, um, uh, to leverage our people power against legislators who may, uh, uh, you know, may not agree with our vision, who may not uh, prioritize the needs of their own constituents. And uh, we're going to take a grassroots organizing approach to getting things done down in Salem. Mm. What are some examples of advocacy that you've been, already been doing down in Salem? So last legislative session, we were fighting really hard um, on Senate Bill 608, which was the statewide rent stabilization bill. 
And that was a bill that I supported and I lobbied and support for, but it was also pretty weak. Um, so that bill did not lift the statewide preemption on rent control. So there's a reason why we don't have a rent freeze right now that we desperately need in Portland. And that's because the Portland city government can't legally institute a rent freeze because there's a statewide preemption. Um, so we were fighting really hard back in 2019 to get that lifted. Um, we were also fighting to lower that cap from the 7% plus CPI that it's at right now, which is 10.3% a year for this year, um, down to a, a lower cap that actually brings relief for working class families. Mm. And okay. in that effort, we turned out a ton of people to testify. Uh, we, we turned out people to uh, rallies and to press conferences. Um, and we had a big impact on fighting back against the realtor and landlord lobby because the realtor and landlord lobby and the Airbnb lobby too, Airbnb has a bunch of lobbyists down there in Salem. We're fighting really, really hard um, against that bill just to, to kill it completely and also um, to make it more conservative. Um, so we were the, and by we, I mean the Portland DSA and Portland Tenants United and then also Community Alliance of Tenants were the only voices in that room turning out working class people to make sure working class people's voices mm -hmm. were heard. And ultimately we got a pretty decent bill out of it. I wish it was perfect, but we'll go back and try to fix that mm. next session. And we know that there are deep, deep chasms in the social safety net in, in our state. We know that uh, we have issues and real disproportionate um, treatment of individuals who identify as communities of color. Um, how will you balance your constituent voices or is it even about balance? How do you center uh, your service around equity? Yeah, so it's not about balance actually. It's about mm -hmm. uplifting voices and giving access to power to communities that have been marginalized. So my job is to represent every constituent in my district, but I also recognize that the interest of every constituent in my district is not necessarily aligned. Um, I know that there are um, houseless people in my district that I'm representing. I know that there are maybe people in my district who maybe can't vote for me because they are undocumented, but I'm still fighting to represent them as well. Um, but there's also landlords in my district. There's also business owners in my district. There's also um, corporate CEOs in my district. Mm -hmm. And while I do technically represent them too, their voices are not going to have as much power in my office, and they're not going to have an equal seat at the table in my office as people who have been marginalized, because that's how we're going to dismantle um, the systems of oppression that keep marginalized people out of, of the access to power and keep marginalized people uh, away from seats at the table where these policy decisions are made that deeply impact uh, all of our lives here on the local level. What have you learned in this campaign about yourself? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So this, mm -hmm. this campaign has been a long one. I've been campaigning since last July. Mm -hmm. um, and I really feel like I'm a totally different person from where I started because I went into this campaign um, with big, bold ideas and a really um, ambitious goal to, to challenge this uh, incumbent. And what I really ran up against was a huge wall of the entire Democratic Party of Oregon establishment coming down to, to block our, our voices out, you know, my voice as well as all the working class people in our campaign that's behind us. Um, so that's tons and tons of money. Amazon donated to our opponent and almost immediately Nike donated to our opponent. Lots of money flowing in. Uh, Governor Kate Brown even made her first donation to a down ballot candidate. And it, it wasn't too 
a Democrat challenging a Republican in a purple district. It wasn't to a Democrat that took a tough vote on cap and trade who might lose their seat in a rural area. It was to our opponent, to an incumbent who is the fourth ranking Democrat in the House and uh, led an effort to cut public employee pensions. And that really taught me that to the establishment, more centrist conservative wing of the Democratic Party, progressive working class voices are much more threatening to them than even Republicans. Um, because we've seen time and time again and that the leadership in the Democratic Party of Oregon is more than willing to sit down and negotiate and compromise and give concessions to the Republican Party of Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to progressive people and working class people, because I'm a disabled veteran, I don't have a lot of money, I, I'm not coming through some candidate pipeline, I, I didn't get invited to um, the women's uh, candidate school, the Oregon Women's Candidate School, or Emerge Oregon, or any of those like centrist candidate pipeline programs. Mm. Um, And it really taught me that uh, we're going to have a really tough fight to get any kind of working class power, not just here, but of course, everywhere in this this country. Um, But it's really important that we actually have that fight and that we go into it um, and that we we fight and show working class people that um, this, you know, there, there is hope. This that this election cycle, especially with Bernie dropping out, isn't over, that, that we can fight for a bold, progressive vision. Mm-hmm. And when we fight together, we can win, because I, I really think this is going to be an incredibly close race. And I think right now, um, we definitely have a very good shot at winning, if not us being the front runner, front runner at this point with all of our endorsements. And that's incredibly important um, to, to really show that working class people still have power in this country. Mm-hmm. Paige, how can our listeners support your work and your candidacy? If you'd like to learn more about our campaign, you can go to page2020.com. That's P-A-I-G-E, 2020.com. And if you live in Southeast Portland, you can cast your ballot for us, for Paige Christman by May 19th. Vote by mail. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Paige. Thanks so much for having me. Again, that's Paige Christman, candidate for House District 42. You can find out more at page2020.com. That's P-A-I-G-E 2020.com. Thanks to Dan, Jim, and Paige for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Again, please, please, pretty please, we'd love your support for the work at X-Ray. Please do become a member at 15 bucks a month or whatever you can do. You'll get the cool new T-shirt. you get the tote bag here. Just go to xray.fm slash donate or call 503-233-X-Ray. Help out if you can. A Texan, a Californian, and an Oregonian are sitting around a campfire. A Texan pulls out a big bottle of whiskey, takes a sip, throws the mostly full bottle in the air, and shoots it. The Oregonian and Californian are shocked. But the Texan just says, ah, where I come from, we got a lot of whiskey. Not to be outdone, the California takes out a bottle of fine Napa Valley wine, takes a little sip, throws it in the air, and shoots it. When the Texan and the Oregonian protest, the Californian says, well, where I come from, we got a lot of wine. The Oregonian thinks for a second, takes out an IPA, drinks the whole thing, throws the bottle in the air, shoots the Californian. Why did you do that, exclaims the Texan. Don't worry, said the Oregonian. Where I come from, we got a lot of Californians, and the bottle's worth a dime. Again, rate and review and share with friends. Story ideas, jokes, suggestions for folks to promote. Email the local at xray.fm. We can be together while we're apart. Tomorrow, we'll be back with a second candidate for House District 42, Rob Nose. Talk to you tomorrow. In the meantime, stay home, stay connected, and thank you, democracy.